to have you on the Climate Wise Agriculture podcast. I am Anika, your host, and today we have a fascinating interview to share with you. The Philippines is one of the most vulnerable countries in the world to climate change. The typhoons shake the country to its core. And as my guest today states, this is becoming the norm. Sheila is a Filipina who I first met at Al Gore's Climate Reality Leadership Corps held in Manila. She wrote a blog last year titled, I Hope You Won't Be Able to Sleep Tonight, describing her fears becoming reality as one month after another broke temperature records, about how extreme weather events are already wreaking havoc in her country. In her blog, she writes, We live in a fork in the road of history. What are we going to do? And how are future generations going to judge us? Sitting next to the mighty Mekong River, we catch up about the reality of climate change in her country and how every individual has a role to play. Thank you so much, Sheila, for being part of the Climate Wise Agriculture podcast. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> no problems at all. So when I met you, we were in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And to me, the Philippines was such a fascinating country. Thank um, you. It's a beautiful country. Mm -hmm. But also for me as a visitor, it was also quite a confusing country mm -hmm. because you see the most beautiful things um, right alongside you know, some pretty sad things too, the poverty and yes. things like that. So I was wondering if we could start off by maybe you introducing yourself, um, mm -hmm. you know, what you were doing in the Philippines and mm -hmm. now in Cambodia. And it would be great if you could uh, tell our listeners maybe a little bit about the Philippines, about your home country. Okay, I am um, Sheila Arcastillo. I have a very long name, but that will <laughs> do for now. Um, and I've been working with the development sector in the Philippines for 16 years. Mm. Uh, my focus is really the environment. That has always been my passion. And um, uh, recently I also worked with uh, a humanitarian uh, project. Um, I think this is very important for me because in 2011 I uh, trained under Al Gore with the Climate Reality Project that's in Jakarta and uh, um, since then I started uh, doing all of these uh, climate talks all over the Philippines in key cities in the Philippines uh, to uh, try to make people understand about the reality of the climate crisis and also its solvability. So, um, and so now I'm in Cambodia, can you imagine that? Um, I'm now in Cambodia and I'm with uh, the Volunteer Services Organization or VSO as an organizational development specialist. I'll be uh, supporting um, two networks of uh, NGOs in Mundulkiri and Ratanakiri. Um, and uh, I will be providing mentoring in terms of uh, uh, the CSO strengthening. So um, it will be a very exciting job. Um, as for my country, um, my country is actually sadly one of always the top three in terms of climate change impacts. It's a very beautiful country. Uh, we're an archipelago and uh, we have one of the longest uh, coastlines in the world. Um, but 
the, these uh, you know small small islands are really experiencing a lot of brunt from climate change impacts. Um, every year we get about 22 uh, typhoons no? or cyclones as we call it um, and uh, more and more uh, extreme uh, typhoons are, are coming our way. In fact if you have heard of the Haiyan or Yolanda um, this is actually one of the worst uh, typhoons ever to land on earth and uh, about 10,000 people died uh, because of it so it is becoming uh, it is becoming the new normal in the Philippines. Uh, I uh, really feel for my people that uh, we are always, you know, at the at the front seat when when it comes to climate change impacts and uh, uh, all of this beauty that you are saying uh, about the Philippines. It's uh, uh, really being threatened by all of this. Yeah, definitely. And in Australia, we have maybe you know, one or two cyclones a mm -hmm. year in northern Australia and it's it's front page of the news and everyone's very concerned about mm -hmm. it. So just hearing that the Philippines has twenty two mm -hmm. that's the average cyclones a mm -hmm. year is just incredible and yeah. it must be, you know, very difficult for people who live close to the coastlines mm -hmm. to you know, get battered by a cyclone and then rebuild and then do it again. And it happens every single year, and yeah. uh, it's getting worse and worse. And uh, um, those uh, areas that were affected by Yolanda, that was 2013, have also experienced uh, some uh, extreme weather events in the um, next uh, couple of years. So it's really terrible, and the um, people are getting it. Uh, it you know. Uh, becoming very, uh, you know, it's difficult for them to really rise up and mm -hmm. uh, really recover uh, from the impact of the, these uh, extreme weather events. Yeah. And when we see, like, as tourist photos of the Philippines, we mm -hmm. often see, you know, these beautiful beaches, all mm -hmm. these coastlines that you mm -hmm. talk about of, you know, the white sand mm -hmm. and the palm trees mm -hmm. and these beautiful coral reefs. Yes. And it's very worrying, you know, when we talk about cyclones and climate change, coral reefs are being really damaged and you know the mangroves that you know grow on these coastline mm -hmm. are really being damaged mm -hmm. and that impacts the people who live along the coastlines That's and true. Um, I remember when I was in the Philippines I was hearing about how farmers are getting affected by salinity in their soils yes, because true. of all these storms mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so these people with so many living on the coastline what are they doing are they moving to the cities well, uh, sadly, uh, I, I uh, don't think they are moving into the cities. Some are, but, uh, you know, this is where they live. This is where their livelihoods are. Um, and uh, a lot of them just, you know, try to get by. Um, in fact, uh, when there is a, a call for them to uh, evacuate, they really take a lot of time they don't want to leave their place because that is where they're you know very very minimal minimal uh, uh, property or um, uh, livelihood are and uh, they don't want to leave it um, so others are moving but it's not you know for people who haven't really gone to school and who don't have the um, you know, the uh, opportunities to compete with um, others in, in a big city. Uh, some of them just 
you know, go back um, empty-handed. Yeah. And when they come back, they find out that their, uh, you know, piece of land or, or uh, their livelihood is already gone, mm. and that, uh, the areas have been developed. Um, so it's it's sad um, what's happening to my uh, countrymen, um, and uh, it's becoming, you know, like a no new normal for us. It's becoming. Um, ordinary sadly sad to say yeah mm -hmm. it is very sad mm -hmm. and i think when we're talking about people on the coast and you mm -hmm. know as an adaption to climate change they can move further from the coast but as you say like that's their homeland that's you know where their family and their ancestors are from mm -hmm. people don't want to leave that it's not that easy that's to true. pick up and just move yeah yeah um, I'll give you an example. In Cebu City, I was working with uh, fellow climate reality leaders. Uh, our, the organization is called Pushon Pinaiyahan. Uh, it means um, uh, fight for uh, uh, the environment. And uh, we were helping this community about to be, um, what do you call this, uh, affected by reclamation. And uh, they were being asked to leave their area the coastal area uh, in the guise of, uh, you know, safety or um, DRR, disaster risk reduction, so they have to, to move out. But the truth is there is um, um, a development project uh, to be installed there. The area, most of the area will be reclaimed uh, to add more land, and then there will be... Um, uh, export processing zones and all of these things. Uh, so people are being driven away uh, from their areas, uh, from where they live, uh, their uh, their livelihood, um, in the guise of you know uh, protecting them from climate change impacts. It's really sad, mm. um, and uh, this is happening all over the country, not mm. just in uh, Cebu City. So, um, so when you you see something like. Uh, people from the coast have to move, you know, we really have to think think twice. Is it really for them or is there a plan to, to develop this area? So mm -hmm. these are the things that are going on. That's hugely concerning. Mm -hmm. So these areas that are being reclaimed, are, is a lot of it farmland? Is it affecting farmers? Um, most, most are, uh, what do you call this, uh, fisher com uh, communities, okay. but uh, some of them are also farmlands mm -hmm. um, and some of uh, them are you know, uh, what we call this, um, these are like uh, mangrove areas that have to be protected because mangroves really um, provide a buffer, you know, mm -hmm. to communities so that they won't be affected by uh, like storm surge and all of these uh, typhoons. Uh, but the uh, mangroves are being cut up and... Um, one teacher who has been planting mangroves with her students in one community in this uh, area that I was telling you about, she was really so frustrated because they have planted uh, these mangroves for years and years. Mm. And then uh, they, ju they just found that uh, the mangroves started dying and they were wondering uh, what's going on. And then uh, um, they were told that 
the mangroves are being poisoned so that they would die and to justify that the communities have to leave and cut off what is remaining and then set up this uh, reclamation area in South of Cebu. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, uh, it's uh, really, you know, uh, a very complex and, mm -hmm. you know, multi-level uh, issue um, that uh, people are facing right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Extremely complex. Mm -hmm. And one of the most probably confronting things I saw when I did my trip to Manila was that we went and visited a landfill site mm -hmm. and we saw you know so many families living we and were together yeah working on the <laughs> landfill and someone told me that a lot of these people they came from farming backgrounds mm -hmm. that they could no longer farm or they were told to move on and they came to the city to look for work or mm -hmm. a better life. Mm -hmm. And they've ended up on a landfill. And mm -hmm. it was really, for me, it, it was hell on earth. Like, the, you could not get in a worse situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do you get people out of that situation if, you know, you don't have the skills, if you don't have education? Yes. It was just such, you know, such a complex issue and I thought you know the enormity of this problem how do you actually <laughs> work it out yeah um, so while working on this reclamation project we asked uh, another project on reclamation uh, in about center of Cebu we asked where did these communities that used to be here where did they go mm. now uh, what happened to them they just disappeared um, and the summer saying that some of them went to the cities in Manila uh, and other, you know, neighboring uh, areas like the, the Metro Cebu, they, they went there and begging, mm. you know. These people used to have a decent livelihood yeah. before. Uh, so begging and picking up rags and uh, these are the things that uh, used to, uh, that, that, that they are doing now. These are fisher folks. Mm. Uh, these are people who knew how to, uh, you know, uh, find money for their families but uh, it's difficult and it's terrible now what uh, they are experiencing and you've seen uh, with your own eyes how they live there within the trash it was really terrible and I myself who have uh, uh, worked on um, a huge um, solid waste project with UNEP before uh, I still can't get over the images of this these are the things that stay with you you know um, I totally agree. Yeah, I think yeah. I will be haunted by, mm -hmm. you know, what we saw that day mm -hmm. forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I met you at the Climate Reality yes. Leadership course. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about this project for our listeners? Um, so it's a, a program run by Al Gore and mm -hmm. his team. Uh, what was your role with it and what did you think of the program? Um, the Climate Reality Project is actually a, a community of volunteers. Um, these are people who were trained by uh, um, a Nobel Prize uh, awardee, uh, Al Gore. Um, and the intention is to be able to uh, give the same um, climate presentations um, to as much as many people as possible. Because uh, Al Gore is just one body and the world has to know about climate change. And so we started uh, doing these trainings. Um, uh, first in the U.S. and then later on in different countries. He is now conducting these trainings two to three times a, day, uh, a year, um, sometimes in as much as four times a year. And uh, so in 2011, I decided to, um, 
to uh, join this because uh, an American lady who lived in Tasmania went to the Philippines and gave this presentation. Can oh, you imagine? Really? Wow! I just... <laughs> to ten people, to ten people, okay. including me, and uh, and I was very interested. I talked to her after, and she said, "If you are interested in doing the same thing, educating about climate change, and you know, uh, telling people there are things that we could do, uh, then you might want to uh, take a training under Al Gore." So. Um, this is a, a competitive application. You have to apply, and if you are selected, then um, you get to train under him. What a privilege to, to be able to do that, and I'm so happy that I was able to, to do it in 2011. And since then, I've been going around and doing these climate talks. I've had uh, more than 60 climate talks in key cities all over the Philippines. I have actually reached an audience of more than 15,000 by this time, and... Uh, it's it's a very inspiring work in that uh, whenever I go to a school, a university, uh, a local government, a community, I always find people who are passionate about the environment. So, you know, some people say, "Oh, what you what you present, it's so inspiring, like that." But I. I keep on telling them, you know, I'm so inspired by you because what you do on the ground, I, I really see that this is what we should be doing. We should be upping this, scaling it up and, you know, really mainstreaming the solutions. And uh, um, so that's what the climate reality is. People are passionate about uh, educating about climate change and uh, we work together. Um, uh, help each other in the Philippines. We recently had, uh, we recently launched a branch in in uh, during the the Philippine training in March, and so we recently celebrated our um, uh, first anniversary of our branch. The branch is really doing very good. A lot of really inspiring initiatives from all of our uh, climate reality leaders. We now have 576. Can you imagine that? Oh my goodness. Yes. Wow. Uh, <laughs> because the bulk of people who trained in the Philippines with you uh, are Filipinos. About only 200 were uh, foreigners. And then... Um, so uh, just before I left the Philippines, uh, the climate reality gave out this... Uh, uh, climate Leadership Awards, and they recognized my efforts. Uh, so they gave me this Lunti Ang Dahon, or Green Leaf uh, uh, Award for Climate Leadership. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, I think it's, um, it's a validation for what we have been doing uh, on a really voluntary basis. We, we give a lot of heart to the work. And uh, so it's, it's nice just before I left that uh, um, we had our branch uh, celebration and, and this awarding with uh, the international manager, Matt Bones. Um, so uh, now here in Cambodia, I reconnected with Van Chai, yes. Roth, a young leader who uh, is one of the only two Cambodians who trained under climate reality. So I'm excited to meet also the other one <laughs> and try to find out how we could work together uh, here in Cambodia um, uh, in whatever capacity since... Um, I'm also doing this uh, volunteering under VSO. Yeah, 
the fact that you have trained 15,000 people, that's unbelievable. So <laughs> well done. And, and this is because of the support of my friends. Yeah. Uh, most of them are teachers. As you know, I, uh, I've been trained to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. I used to teach. So I have a very uh, a large uh, education network. And uh, they've been inviting me all over. Um, so uh, the good thing about that is uh, I always have this... Um, after the presentation, a short, short workshop or in the students or the local government or community can sit together and try to think up what, we sh- what should we do together. And it's really inspiring what they come up with. Really simple things, you know, like waste segregation mm-hmm. or uh, banning the, the straw or very, very simple things. Um, one school uh, decided to set up uh, what they call this uh, solar small solar panels for mobile uh, charging now these are really very simple things um, that I think uh, peop- uh, make people think that uh, you know solutions are possible in whatever level even individuals in schools and communities we can do something about it yeah, that's very true. And as you say, education is just such a big part of it. And I really do think that knowledge is power. And when you have the knowledge of how climate change is impacting the world, I really feel a responsibility to then mm-hmm. act on that, to actually share that knowledge and, you know, try and build resilience in mm-hmm. you know the communities that I'm working with. And obviously you're doing a similar <laughs> thing too with a big education focus. Mm-hmm. Um, Now, I wanted to ask you about being a vegan. So Mm -hmm. I know that, yes, you're on a vegan diet, Mm -hmm. and this is a a very, I guess, a hot topic, something that's very popular in Australia at Mm -hmm. the moment. Mm -hmm. A lot of people talk about vegetarianism and veganism Mm -hmm. um, and how it's helpful to solve the climate change Mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Myself, I've been a vegetarian on and off a Mm -hmm. few times and I would like to know from you you know how you think that your diet Mm -hmm. plays a role in the climate change solution. Mm -hmm. Um, I changed my diet in 1996 as a vegetarian Mm -hmm. and as a vegetarian I was just looking at uh, not really more on the environment side uh, but I was more on the uh, uh, you know, yoga, spiritual side of it. Mm. Um, so while working on the environment and then in 2011, uh, directly on climate change and in 2015, um, I was talking, I was in India in 2015 and I was talking to this American classmate of mine in a training that I was attending and I was telling, she was asking me about my vegetarian diet and she said, um, and I told her, you know, actually I've, oh, I've, always wanted to be a vegan but uh, her reply was but why you know so incredulous and I I, I said to myself I know the why is of why I want to be vegan why am I not working on it so Mm -hmm. the moment that I went back to the Philippines I said I'm going to set a date uh, and be vegan starting on this date Um, because I know what why I want to be vegan and um, and it's just me who is you know just stopping myself from uh, doing something about it. So I, I became vegan in 2015. <laughs> Wonderful. And I suspect, you know, in some countries, maybe it's easier to have a, a vegetarian diet. Mm-hmm. And in some countries where 
you know, meat is quite part of the culture, it would be more difficult. Mm -hmm. Do you do you find it difficult being a vegan? It's uh, difficult, but because I was vegetarian for so long, mm. I, I think the shift was not really uh, so hard for me. It's even um, easier than I expected. I mm -hmm. thought it, I would have some difficulties, but my mind is so conditioned to, to really do it. So it's just uh, an, like a natural shift for me. Uh, and I'm blessed to, to have experienced that because a lot of people are really having uh, difficulties. In Cambodia, mm. it's different. Uh, especially now that I'm new here and I'm not yet cooking my own food. Um, food here is just so meat-based. It's either beef, chicken, or pork, so meat-based. And I really have a hard time, you know, negotiating how they pre should prepare my food. Uh, but I'm getting there because uh, I, I, I just have to, uh, to try and make people understand that some people just don't eat these things yeah yeah so maybe they think it's kind of weird <laughs> but uh... <laughs> no I think you're, you're quite trendy <laughs> um, yeah I guess a lot of countries as they you know they increase the wealth of their people mm -hmm. people generally start to eat more meat mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I guess I hear some reports that, you know, in general, there are probably more meat consumers uh, mm -hmm. coming and into the future. Um, although in some areas of society, people are trying to convert to vegetarianism and mm -hmm. veganism. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you, you think, like in the developing countries, you're seeing, you know, more meat? And that's true. What that's, do you think is happening? That's very true. You know, um, there is, uh, I, I read a study um, that shows uh, Asians are becoming taller and taller, you know, um, and they attribute this to an increase in uh, uh, meats in the diet. Right, so it's actually changing the physique. Yes, uh, yeah. so the young, young generations of Asians are becoming taller and taller. Um, and it's not necessarily good in that uh, it doesn't necessarily make them a lot healthier because mm -hmm. obesity is also increasing um, in the um, in terms of uh, overall health there is no uh, really a sharp increase of uh, um, what do you call this uh, well-being or health mm -hmm. huh? so um, you're right there is definitely an increase in uh, uh, meat consumption among Asians and uh, this is uh, becoming a concern um, uh, for so many reasons for health reasons for environmental reasons for economic also because you can really get a good value uh, good healthy uh, food uh, um, more cheaply with uh, a plant-based diet. So um, this changing in landscape is uh, also, you know, uh, caused by the increase of fast food in in Asian countries. In the Philippines, you know, so many fast food, mm. and people are eating more, more and more fast food in their mm. uh, every day. So. It's not necessarily healthy. Mm. And that's interesting on the topic of fast food. When I come to Asia, I always see so much plastic and styrofoam. And no matter 
you know, where I go and I buy some food, it's always in a styrofoam box in a plastic bag mm -hmm. and there's plastic cutlery and there's a plastic straw. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to try so hard mm -hmm. to avoid that plastic that comes with all your food. Mm -hmm. And perhaps this is part of the fast food culture that yes. people want to, you know, swing into a, a stall on the side of the road and yes. buy some food mm -hmm. and it comes with all this plastic. And then the unfortunate side of that is you then see plastic all along the streets mm -hmm. and, you know, in the gutters. And I know it's a big problem, mm -hmm. this, you know, plastic pollution in the Philippines is a big problem here in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. How do you think we can get around this? <laughs> Thank you for asking that. This I'm very passionate about this. Um, in fact, I have a Facebook page. It's a community of volunteers, you know, trying to uh, promote uh, the banning of single-use plastics. Um, we call it the disposable bottle busters. If you are familiar with the Ghostbusters logo, yes, yeah, we changed that a bit. <laughs> you know, the the, <laughs> the ghost is like uh, the, <laughs> the single-use plastic okay. with eyes and hands, um, or the styrofoam with eyes and hands, and um, or uh, a cup with a plastic cup with a cover and a straw. Um, and what else? Um, Single-use uh, plastic. Yes, all of these things. Tireable. Okay. So disposable bottle must busters is that uh, we are campaigning against the use of uh, single-use plastics. Mm -hmm. As you said, you're very right. It's a very big problem in the Philippines as well as in Cambodia. I see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And um, the problem is that with this fast food uh, culture and throwaway culture, people just don't mind it anymore. And there are several studies that said that uh, the ASEAN countries are contributing a lot to marine waste. Um, I don't know how they do it, but I, I, I uh, have the tendency to agree because what is, um, what is, uh, what you can see here, you know, in riverbanks and uh, uh, in coastal areas, they're just everywhere. And I've joined a lot of uh, coastal cleanups in my life. My goodness, it's just um, every single year, you know, for this marine uh, coastal cleanup in the Philippines, they were so happy. They, they were always the, the biggest, um, uh, what do you call this? They, they get the biggest in statistics in terms of how many uh, people joined the event and how many uh, plastics were gathered. Uh, and I said, it's not good at all, because it means that we're not really, you know, teaching people. It should be declining. Exactly. <laughs> and every single year, it's, it's um, just, um, you know, the trend is just upwards. Um, and it's really so bad that people just don't think about it. It's like, it's so normal to throw. Um, a plastic bag or sheet or what have you uh, yeah. along waterways and not even waterways but uh, it, it just ends there um, uh, and I always use the example of the single value meal when I uh, uh, talk about this uh, what they call a value meal like in the Philippines value meal one would be uh, like a burger um, with ketchup and so what are with this small value meal um, so they have this wax paper that couldn't be recycled in any way they have this uh, 
uh, ketchup packet they have this um, of course the drink has the plastic uh, cup the the cover the straw and then they put it all together or maybe in two separate plastics even so it, it's just terrible um, and uh, even though there is uh, um, there are a lot of efforts to say ban this and ban that it's it's not really happening mm-hmm. it has to be I think it has to uh, be attacked in a manner that uh, has some monetary uh, what you call this uh, impact on it like uh, like for plastic bags for instance um, people has to pay for plastic bag if yeah. they want to if they they want that, that in a in a grocery store or if they buy something uh, from a stall for instance for such a drink which has a sli- plastic sling even um, they have to they have to pay more and that's the only way that people would stop using uh, throwaway items and disposables if we don't do that it's just so simple oh i don't care i don't pay for it anyway and i just throw it away yeah. so I think we should start thinking in terms of economics and putting real value on that on that uh, plastic uh, and making it inaccessible as possible so I don't know how uh, how uh, people in Asia are starting to look into that uh, some schools some NGOs have started little initiatives but we are in a crisis situation, you know, and we have to do the solutions in, in a huge scale. We cannot do this, uh, you know, the, 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 the business as usual way. We have to be really radical in, in, in uh, scaling up the solutions. And if we do not do this, it's just that uh, there's just no more time. No? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I went to a cafe today for lunch and they only serve drinks in plastic cups Mm -hmm. and everyone was sitting there you know having their meal in the cafe they were not takeaway Mm -hmm. but everything was in plastic and why is it not in glass everything was in a uh, one-use plastic Mm -hmm. cup Mm -hmm. and I sat there in the cafe and it was Brown's coffee Mm -hmm. and I sent them an email while sitting there and said this is completely irresponsible. That's true. Mm -hmm. You have to be showing leadership. Mm -hmm. Cambodia has such a huge environmental pollution problem. Mm -hmm. You cannot be serving single-use plastic cups to people who are sitting in your cafe to throw it out. Mm -hmm. And it makes economic sense too. If if you have a glass, you reuse that. Mm -hmm. And so it saves a business money Mm -hmm. as well. And I think as a, a tourist or a visitor to these countries, um, you know, you see things with fresh eyes and you often get shocked by things. And, you know, I see people who throw a bag of rubbish into the Mekong River and that completely oh shocks mm-hmm. me because I come mm-hmm. here and I think of, you know, the majestic Mekong River and I have all these wonderful, you mm-hmm. know, images in my mind. And then I, I see someone throw rubbish into it. I see rubbish floating along it and it. You know, you really feel that in your heart. It breaks your heart that this is happening. Yes, that's true. You know, I uh, I don't know if you remember in the hotel we, we, where we had the uh, training in the Philippines. That's facing Manila Bay, no? Um, and at the mouth of Manila Bay, uh, there is um, uh, a huge river. We call it the Pasig River. And uh, it's actually a dead river. 
Um, it's a dead river, and the government has been trying to revive it for years and years, and uh, they can't seem to, because people are continuing to throw uh, not just plastic waste, but also uh, waste effluents from the industries. Um, in the recent years, the uh, solid waste have reduced drastically, um, but uh, it's still not totally clean, and it, mm -hmm. it's not yet, uh, you know, revived. Um, and it's the same thing that is happening here, very, very uh, similar. Um, and there has to be a change in... I, I, I cannot say just a change of mind. It, it has to be a change of heart in people. A change to, of a whole culture, a, I think. A change of whole culture, a change of heart that they would feel for the, the river. And it's not, it, it's not happening. No, that's right. Yeah, it's such a huge issue. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's up to us as consumers too to say no to plastic. If someone, you know, is wanting to put our drink in a plastic cup, we say, no, I want it yes. in a glass. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I don't want that extra plastic bag holding mm -hmm. my styrofoam box. Mm -hmm. So I think that's everyone's responsibility that's and that's true. something that everyone can do mm -hmm. at every meal they eat each day is mm -hmm. say no to the plastic that comes with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I also want to talk to you about volunteering. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, they hear about climate change and mm -hmm. they think, gosh, this is a big issue. What can I do about it as an individual? Mm -hmm. And volunteering is one way to start. We can mm -hmm. all volunteer mm -hmm. to, you know, pick up rubbish or work with, you know, mm -hmm. communities. Mm -hmm. So you do a lot of work with volunteers and mm -hmm. volunteering organisations. Mm -hmm. What role do you think they play in climate change solutions? Um, you know, just for uh, the Climate Reality Project, I'm so amazed at 11,000 people all over the world. You know, they do all of these things, all of the different initiatives that they do on their own. They don't even have to be in a, in a certain, uh, you know, organization uh, to initiate something. Uh, the moment that they, they realize about climate change uh, due to the inconvenient truth order training of Al Gore, they immediately dive into all of these things that, um, that could be done, that showing that uh, there are, you know, individuals really matter and, and all of these little things add up. And um, I think uh, volunteers and the youth have a very big big uh, role no, to 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 do and uh, um, it doesn't matter if you are on your own or you are under an organization or what um, there are a lot of things that individuals can do like for example what we have been talking about you know refusing plastic uh, or even trying a plant-based diet not not necessarily 100% you know just trying to uh, reduce, no. The coolest thing nowadays is what they call reducitarian. <laughs> yeah, reducitarian. I've not heard that one. <laughs> because they say it's just impossible for people to be vegans. All of yeah. the people in the world to be vegans. But they said if you become a reducitarian, you are immediately helping out because your impact is uh, immediately reduced. So be a reducitarian, you know. Um, and then. Um, uh, of course, if you are passionate about teaching people, um, that is very important nowadays because 
people are experiencing the impact of climate change without really understanding what's going on, why is this happening? Um, but if they have an understanding of it, they will be able to protect themselves more and really uh, uh, make themselves empowered in that they feel that they are doing something as part of the solution. Um, and uh, so I, I really encourage young people to take part. Uh, and actually not just young people, everyone, um, professionals who have some spare time can, can do some things on weekends. Uh, m many of our colleagues in the climate reality are, um, you know, working in, in, in various fields and yet they spend time and uh, give, uh, uh, give themselves to, to the cause to try to really educate more and more people about the crisis that we are currently in. Mm, and that's so true that, mm. you know, we can't all do everything. You mm -hmm. know, some people, it's not possible to ride a bike to work or mm -hmm. some people, you know, they don't want to change their diet mm -hmm. or, um, you know, some people they need the fast food because they're mm -hmm. very busy. Mm -hmm. But if we all, you know, just do one thing, you know, mm -hmm. what is within our capability? That's true. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that does make a difference. Uh, yes, and also do collective action. Just yeah. recently, uh, yesterday, um, I read about so many climate marches all over the world and, of course, not here in Cambodia. <laughs> it's a different setting. But uh, all over the world, in the Philippines, my colleagues there in climate reality, they did their climate marches. In DC, oh my God, it's so... Uh, inspiring, yeah, inspiring. To, to, to see how many people uh, just went out and joined uh, um, to, to show that uh, we have to speak up for science we have to speak up for people who are uh, being affected by this over and over so individual action is as important as collective action they have to go hand in hand so find yourself a group and uh, and try to participate in um, uh, in these actions uh, you you don't have to go shouting in the streets. Uh, there are a lot of creative ways to show um, that people care about what's going on in the environment. And so look it up. There are so many fun ways to do um, uh, resistance. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and I've seen it uh, all over and a lot of these uh, creative ways are being initiated by young people also. That's wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I often think that climate change action by an individual is rather like, you know, voting in an election. You think, oh, you know, just my individual action is not going to make a difference. But when everyone mm -hmm. does it, mm -hmm. does one little individual action, you know, that can change a whole country. That that's can change true. a whole future. And that's exactly like voting, you know. So... Uh, yeah, people who think, oh, the climate change, is, it's too big, mm -hmm. you know, what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. I always try and remind them that, you know, you're not the only person. Yeah, and, you know, there are so many people mm -hmm. who, together, mm -hmm. you, you make such a big difference. Yes, and uh, if people feel alone and if people feel that uh, what they do individually do not really uh, uh, contribute in any way, we have to connect we have to connect uh, 
uh, to each other, to try to support uh, each other's initiatives. And I've seen the, uh, the, the multiplier effect of these connections. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, people from uh, the climate reality, they, I think they've mastered this art. And uh, they come together and do these things together. And um, uh, especially in the Philippines, young people, they're really initiating very good uh, actions. They're focusing in universities, you know, teaching. Uh, last Earth Day, our uh, youth um, uh, did uh, um, ma made a booth in uh, La Mesa Eco Park. And they just explained to people what climate change is about. Um, and this is on their own, you know, on their own idea. They're just, they just do it. Um, I'm so inspired by, by how a single person who, who thinks about it and connects with others are able to do uh, so many things. Um, and uh, everybody can, can try to do that and try to find people who, who they can work with. Mm. Just thinking about that, you know, connecting with other people in countries like this, often in farming communities or rural communities, um, maybe the connection is more difficult, like they don't have access to the internet. You know, lots of people are starting to get mobile phones and connecting mm -hmm. that way. Do you think that it is more difficult for farmers and rural communities to, you know, connect with each other and speak out about climate change? Or do you actually think the opposite in that rural communities are often, you know, quite tight-knit, they're quite close, and perhaps, you know, that closeness and that connection to their environment mm -hmm. and the people, their neighbours, makes them even stronger as climate change advocates? Well, you know, in the Philippines, it's quite interesting because um, um, people have started to leapfrog into the mobile, you know, age and uh, um, people who have never had the, the opportunity to have a landline phone, they're now on mobile, even farmers. Um, and uh, in a way, this is uh, helpful in that uh, they are able to access information right away. There are initiatives from the government wherein they um, broadcast the um, uh, the weather uh, updates. They through through text messaging, mobile uh, mobile messaging, um, the uh, prices for uh, what kind of produce, um, so that the farmers could uh, you know uh, try to uh, negotiate a good price for their uh, produce. Um, so this leapfrogging um, gave them an opportunity really to to. Um, maximize that technology but it's not yet as widespread as it should be because people really should benefit from this uh, technology uh, but in terms of really these uh, rural communities in terms of how closely knit they are um, I still would like to believe that it's still the case um, and I do hope it goes on <laughs> Um, because I, I also fear that um, with uh, the modernization and all of these technologies that are coming coming to our rural communities, that there is also, you know, uh, a change happening um, as an effect of being exposed to um, a, more, a more modern culture, I should say. 
so uh, I, it would really sadden me if people in communities are no longer sitting together under the, under the trees and you know really having a real chat <laughs> uh, and just seeing them you know looking at their mobile phones and chatting so let's hope that uh, that this technology will be able to help more and benefit people more uh, rather than uh, for uh, for the technology to uh, uh, what do you call this uh, um, effect disassociation yeah. I guess. yes yeah. yes because it's disassociation yeah. among um, these communities yeah mm-hmm. no that's that's very true and I think that the technology the internet the you know the mobile phones that we can connect with people right around the world mm-hmm. not even within our countries mm-hmm. but we can share ideas from all corners of the world mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. and you know we can you know some people have the the privilege to be able to travel to those places mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. and I think you know with climate change solutions we do need to work together yes, and definitely. I hope mm-hmm. with you know with new technology mm-hmm. we can we can really do that yes, yes. Um, we are starting to use this in the Philippines uh, in terms of uh, uh, providing real-time information to farmers that's wonderful but the these are just still on the pilot phases. Uh, it has to be really uh, mainstream, you know. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Do you have any messages of hope, of words of wisdom to encourage people to take action? People who are listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. what would you say to them? You know, when we talk about climate change, people are really so depressed about climate change. but. Uh, as we say in climate reality, we, it is our task to give people hope, you know, because uh, um, despair is so uh, paralyzing and uh, people think that the problem is so big that they just can't do anything about it and might as well not do anything about it at all. But on the contrary, the solutions are already at hand. It's everywhere. We can see it. And even us, within us, individuals, we can do something about it. So just just keep that in mind. Whenever we see a problem that is too big, such as climate change, remember that we were able to, uh, you know, uh, address the uh, ozone layer problem. Um, people were able to go to the moon. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and, uh, and when we see a big issues such as climate change don't fall into despair do not be paralyzed about it there is something that each of us can do in our capacities however small together it all adds up and uh, just just think that um, as an individual there is something I can do and that is already hopeful and that is I think um, something that could empower anyone uh, just knowing that uh, each of us have the power to to contribute to the solution, I, I think that is really inspired me. Thank you so much for those words of hope. Thank you, and, thank you for inviting me. You know, just me. meeting you, uh, you know, you <laughs> fill me with hope for the future. So thank you so much for your work, Sheila. And you, Sheila. of course, because young people have to work on agriculture. Please, please, please do work on agriculture. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being part of the Climate Wise Agriculture podcast and all the best with your work. And I hope we can speak again in the future. Thank you. <laughs> And that was my conversation with Sheila and her message 
that each of us has the power to contribute to the solution. Thank you for listening to the podcast episode of ClimateWise Agriculture. I am your host, Anika, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye.